Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the author of An Advanced Man's Guide to the White House Stagecraft, Campaign Spectacle, and Political Suicide. The book is published by St. Martin's Press this year. The author of the book is Josh King. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Heath. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the author of An Advanced Man's Guide to the White House Stagecraft, Campaign Spectacle, and Political Suicide. The book is published by St. Martin's Press this year. The author of the book is Josh King. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Heath. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. Uh, It's a long title to such an interesting book. Before we get to it, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up in Boston and in the cradle of the American Revolution, became a intense student of American history, a patriotic guy at heart, went to Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, and then after I graduated, went to work on my first presidential campaign, that for Senator Paul Simon, followed by Governor Mike Dukakis. Took a few years off and found myself back in politics working for Governor Bill Clinton in 1992. Followed him into the White House where I worked from 93 till the very last days of 1997. And then made my way eventually out of Washington post 9-11. And for several years, a few years ago from 2001 to 2011, actually hosted the Polyoptics Theater of Politics radio show on Sirius XM, the POTUS channel 124, that was then turned into a weekly podcast as well. So I'm back on friendly territory talking about politics in a podcast format. Yeah, this explains why your radio voice is is so clear. I, I, I didn't even realize you were part of the podcasting family, or at least the your your old show is now part of the podcasting well, family. I, that, that... There's a couple pages about it in uh, in part three of the book off script. And, uh, and I talk about how I just I always thought that the theater of politics and the presidency and the stagecraft involved uh, lends themselves to so much conversation, whether it's around the dinner table, the coffee, uh, the water cooler. Every time that we uh, wake up in the morning, the first thing we see at night is in the morning are probably clips from late night television, which themselves are making fun of things that are broadcast on the news earlier in the day. So we are constantly being bombarded by the visual and and asked and our brains are being asked to make a judgment about what we see. And uh, and as much as I'm also a student of policy and believe that substance is so important and what a person truly believes and their policy views should trump their visual uh, spectacle, I understand very much that as part of American culture, we are very much driven by what our eyes absorb. Yeah, and, and I'm going to talk uh, a little bit and ask you a question about that. That is, you're you're sort of stepping back to to think about the the moment we are in our 
political history. But but before we get to that, maybe we can get to some real specifics, which is that your book gives the advance team, in many ways, the attention that they typically direct at the candidate. Um, I wonder if you'd briefly describe the job descriptions of the members of the advance team. Sure. The advance team, in some ways, Heath, are like the movie producers of politics. And you might have a romantic or uh, uh, fantastic notion of what movie producers actually do uh, in terms of what the director does, yelling lights, camera, action. But producers cover everything from the financing of a film to the casting of a film to the logistics of bringing hundreds of people into one place and getting them from point A to point B to actually making sure that everything works. And then when it's over, everything gets nicely cleaned up and put away. And so within the advance team, there's a lead advance and that would be the executive producer or the director. They're the political boss of a team of five or six people that are dispatched out to a small town or a city for about a five or six day stay in advance of a candidate's arrival. And they handle the local politics and they handle the communication back with the campaign headquarters. But underneath the lead advance are a dedicated group of people, both for Democrats and, and, the, and the makeup is very similar to de- for Democrats and Republicans. There are site advance people. And these are like the production designers. And this was my forte for all the years that I worked in political advance from 1988, really until uh, 2009, the last trip that I did. And those are the core, the, the, uh, the cinema, the production designers, cinematographers, choreographers, people who really design the scene and make it happen on what we call game day. And then there are press advance people. And these press advance people work with reporters and producers and camera people, photographers, um, anyone who is dispatched by a news organization to come and cover an event and press advance people try and make their jobs as easy as possible because everyone has the shared objective of making sure that uh, as many good pictures get out from an event as possible. Then there are motorcade advance people. And these are people who make sure that everyone who comes out of a campaign, a campaign, a candidate's campaign plane has a car to get into and gets from the airport tarmac to the event site to the second event site to the third event site and back to the airport tarmac and back into the plane then there's one other member of the team and the this is called the ron advance person or ron advance person and whenever a candidate decides to stay overnight in a in a specific city the ron stands for remain overnight and that's what happens when you have to make sure that a hotel or motel has a block of 10, 20, 30, 40 rooms in a specific hotel so that the the candidate, the member of his or her entourage and the traveling press corps all have a place to stay and and, uh, have rooms ready for them when they arrive. And early morning when they check out for those pre-dawn departures, make sure all the bags are taken from the rooms, loaded onto trucks, put onto the plane uh, and route to the next city. Now, much of the first half of your book uh, revolves around what happened in Sterling Heights, Michigan. Would you tell us the, the short version of that story of Michael Dukakis's campaign and, and in particular his advance man, Matt Bennett? Sure, Heath. There are three parts of the book. Uh, the worst political event in history, 
and that is this event that you mentioned, September 13th, 1988, Sterling Heads, Michigan. The second part is Getting Tanked, which focuses on one single event in every campaign that followed 1988. And the third is the Vanilla Presidency, 2009 to 2017, basically the Obama presidency and the one which will follow. And in the first part, I use what I call the worst event in political history. This time that the, the Dukakis campaign decided to put Mike Dukakis in an M1A1 main battle tank as the perfect exemplar of how everything went wrong at the same time under the direction of multiple players, both on the road with the candidate at the location he was going to visit, Sterling Heights, Michigan, and back at campaign headquarters. This young man that you mentioned, Matt Bennett, 23 years old, just out of the University of Pennsylvania, told by his bosses at Dukakis headquarters in Boston, go to Detroit. We need to win that state's 20 electoral votes, particularly the Reagan Democrat votes that were residing in Macomb County, this ring county around urban Detroit, uh, that voted that longtime Democrats, but had voted for Ronald Reagan in both the 1980 and 84 elections. We need to win them back so that Governor Dukakis can win Michigan. He needed to do one other thing beside winning in this key battleground state. He needed to position himself as a strong commander in chief, because while Dukakis had many other attributes and polled very well on attributes such as cares about people like me. He didn't poll very well when when the pollster would ask, do you think he would make a strong commander in chief? Why not? Because he'd spent his time coming out of Swarthmore with two years of service uh, in post armistice Korea in the army, but otherwise was a uh, an administrator, an administrator, a local politician moving up the ranks in Massachusetts and did not have a lot of foreign policy experience. This compared to Vice President George H.W. Bush, who was a member of Congress, was an envoy to China, was director of the CIA, was uh, head of the um, Republican National Committee, and was one of the youngest uh, pilots ever to be in combat uh, in the Pacific theater in World War II. So in so many respects, Vice President Bush had Dukakis beat here. But the, Duka the Dukakis campaign reasoned that if they could do things and spend a whole week of their campaign uh, agenda from September 11th to probably September 14th, 1988, giving speeches on foreign policy and defense issues, and doing this one event outside Detroit in Sterling Heights, in which the governor would actually put on a a jumpsuit and a and a steel helmet and hop into one of these uh, M1A1 tanks, the bulwark of the conventional arsenal, uh, defending the United States and its NATO allies against. Soviet aggression coming across the European border, the Dukakis would look every bit the part of George C. Scott in the 1971 film Patton. And that would be, provide the kind of visuals and video that pr these producers and news organizations that had followed Ronald Reagan around for nine years really demanded as part of color for their two-minute news packages while Dukakis gave speeches on these same topics. And it ended up as a disaster. But how it ended up as a disaster is the kind of story that I took about eh, 110 pages to tell in the course of off script. And this event uh, that went very badly for some of the reasons you allude to and other reasons that people 
particularly those that have followed politics, probably remember. But it was really what happened next uh, that is probably why we remember it. How did the Bush campaign use these images that were produced from the Sterling Heights event to its advantage? Right, Heath. So the event took place in the midday hours of September 13, 1988. And as is usual, there were many cameras and photographers in tow along with Governor Dukakis. And they all shot film and video for this event, and they all went back to their workspaces, a temporary filing center in Sterling Heights after the event, to produce two-minute packages for Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, and Tom Brokaw on the news that night. And the Dukakis campaign got a lot of kudos that day for, as I mentioned earlier, producing an event that almost was Reagan-esque in many respects. Now, some people looked at this video, some aspects of it, and say, well, Michael Dukakis isn't quite Reagan. We're going to get a pretty good story tonight, but we'd rather let things lie and hope nobody sees this video after this because his helmet looked a little big on him. He had a big white label on the front of that helmet that said Mike Dukakis. He was sort of smirking as the tank made its way at 45 miles an hour directly toward the press corps and made a violent left turn, almost decapitating the camera people who were on the press riser. And so if there wasn't much talked about after this event, I think the Dukakis campaign would have been pleased. But in the days that followed, the Republicans started doing what today we see as commonplace using social media. But back then, they would create talking points and fax them out to a thousand of their supporters all across the country. So suddenly you had Republican surrogates making fun of Governor Dukakis, looking like Snoopy in a fight against the Red Baron or Rocky Squirrel in this helmet. You had Vice President Bush on the stump several days later saying that the helmet doesn't fit, the role doesn't fit. And then interestingly, that very night in Washington, D.C., a man named Sig Rogish, who was the director of advertising for Bush Quayle, who had worked on the 1984 campaign of Ronald Reagan, the Morning in America ads. And he looked at this footage and he said, I got an idea. You know, if we take some of this footage and apply it to the policy positions that Governor Dukakis has postulated, some of his opposition to weapon systems that we, the Republicans, might think are important, and put this in an ad while we show footage of him going back and forth in this tank ride, looking not Patton-esque, but something far less in stature, then we might have a pretty effective ad. But no one would sell roguish the footage uh, because news organizations didn't want the work that the, the, the footage that they'd collected go to a partisan political ad. But roguish somehow acquired about 11 seconds of footage, enough to uh, reverse back and forth, to freeze frame, to blow up, to add sound effects to, and made this devastating ad under the direction of Roger Ailes, in which the litany of weapons programs that Dukakis uh, seemed to oppose scrolled up and down the screen while a narrator said the same thing. And no one had made an ad that was so belittling of a, of a candidate before the way a guy is running back and forth on a, on a large proving ground in a huge tank. And indeed, many people in the Bush campaign thought, in, including Rogish, 
that it might be so sarcastic that maybe it shouldn't be used. But five weeks later, on October 18th, uh, this ad was broadcast for the first time on Game 3 of the World Series between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Oakland A's. And really, they never looked back. They used a huge amount of their advertising budget. And so for the remaining several weeks of the campaign, Mike Dukakis was branded as a person to whom voters should not entrust the keys to the U.S. arsenal. In the closing day, so sorry, Keith. Keith, No, no, go ahead, please. No, no, please. Well, in the closing days of the campaign, Dukakis tried to rebut this by doing a one-minute ad of his own, but it's really a case of the truth never catching up with the lie, too little too late, and really not enough resources and creativity or humor uh, being used in rebuttal. It was such an effective and biting and, it's, and in many ways sort of funny and, and, and sarcastic ad that it really resonated. And this was at a time, Heath, when we had so little choice uh, on television of what to view. People were, the World Series was one of the great televised events. People would really watch one of uh, three, net, three broadcast networks, maybe CNN, which was only eight years old at this point. Uh, MSNBC and Fox News did not exist. So you could really use an advertising budget to effectively create a storyline that was difficult to rebut. Now, and to that very point, uh, in the book, you call what has happened ever since, quote, the age of optics. What do you mean by this? What is, what is the age of optics? Well, the age of optics is uh, a period where I define as 1988 onward. We, we know Ronald Reagan is the great communicator from in his campaigns in 1980 and 84. And indeed he was. And indeed Michael Deaver, who was sort of a person who I emulated really on the other side uh, for many years, he would bring President Reagan out to places that helped where the place and the backdrop and the people that the president was with helped tell a story. But when you finally got to 1988, both the Democrats and the Republicans realized that for them to be successful, all of these candidates, the, the seven on the Democratic side, maybe an equal number on the Republican side, they needed to craft their campaigns around visuals, uh, around these daily treks out onto the campaign trail, whether it was in Iowa on a cornfield, New Hampshire on a frozen lake, uh, down into the south, out to the west, around these visual motifs and symbols that could resonate and and be successfully photographed, show up on the front pages of the paper uh, and in the evening news. So uh, I think if you think back to uh, 92, 96, 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012, you know, so many moments are about both campaigns trying to one up each other in how they can produce a visual tableau on the stage. Now, you, you list in the book the, the five tricks that you learned uh, to create a memorable image, a memorable political image. I wonder if you could briefly describe what these five tricks are that, that, that you've learned over time. Were these about the shots, Heath? Yeah, this, yeah, exactly. This is sort of very much on creating a, a, memorable, a memorable image. What do, you, what do you need to do the stagecraft to get, that, get the candidate to the point at which they are um, in frame and, and ready for that image that's going to, at, the t- at that time, uh, circulate on the the covers of newspapers right. and be on the on the news and and you sort of broke this down I think such an interesting way towards the beginning of the book and 
Oh, I wonder maybe if you can just talk about a couple of them, even where you where you think you've learned and picked these up over time. Sure. Really interestingly, you know, I came out of Swarthmore College and as a political science major, but uh, it's fair to say that I was more focused on you know the the writing of the of the correspondence in Time, Newsweek, and U.S. News than I were was the political philosophers. And uh, so I I got onto my first campaign very much attuned not so much to the the deep political philosophy where these candidates came from, but how they projected themselves in public. And luckily enough, in my uh, when I started working for Governor Clinton after my initial apprenticeship, call it in 1988. I was working for with a, a gentleman named Mort Engelberg, and Engelberg was a old Hollywood producer, uh, came up through the studio system, was responsible for movies like the three Smokey and the Bandit films in which Burt Reynolds and Sally Field course across the hustings in a Trans Am. And Mort had made a huge amount of money in Hollywood and then devoted himself to Maybe his first passion, he was a photographer during Bobby Kennedy's War on Poverty. But Mort helped me understand about all of the shots that go into uh, the way news organizations package political events and the way photographers see political events through their lens. And take any city that a politician might visit. Call it Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Well, if you're going to do an event in Lancaster... Start with something that allows for a large wide shot, a candidate coming into town or across a town green against the courthouse or the city hall so that you can put them into time and place. And then think about how a camera person will zoom in to a medium shot, who your candidate is on stage with, who are those uh, politicians or local celebrities that they are waving uh, their arms with. Uh, are they a good mix of age and gender and uh, and the types of people that you would expect to see in a town like that? And then zoom into the what I call the tight shot, just the candidate, their head and shoulders. And what's right behind them? Is it a few words that successfully project an image so that if the volume is turned down on the TV, uh, the viewer still will know what the candidate is trying to say? protecting America's families, strengthening America's values, building a bridge to the 21st century. And one more shot was also important, which is what we call the, the cutaway or reverse shot. And that is if you took one of these camera people behind the candidate and had them shoot over the candidate's shoulder, would they see a large, enthusiastic crowd in some ways affirming or endorsing through the sense of momentum and enthusiasm, what the candidate was trying to say. And in this respect, I think, you know, one of the nominees this summer, Donald Trump, has been a student as well. In those early months, he would goad the reporters and the camera people who were following him to turn the lenses around. You see me on the stage. Yeah. And I want you to, to shoot me. But what I really want you to do is to turn around and see how many thousands of people have come out for me. And what comparison this makes to Governor Jeb Bush, for example, or Marco Rubio, who would maybe fill a VFW hall with 50, 60, maybe 100 people. At the same time, I'm using my celebrity and my 757 with the Trump 
logo on the fuselage, and I'm attracting 30,000 people to Lad Peebles Stadiums in Birmingham, Alabama on a Friday night. How can any of my 16 potential rivals stack up to that level of enthusiasm that I've generated? So, you reporters out there, turn your lenses around and show the American public how many people I've got to turn out to my events. And if you talk about building political momentum or creating propaganda, I mean, that's stock and trade of that. And that owes its origins to understanding how news organizations deploy uh, people out to gather these images, how they're packaged and sent and and presented to the American people, really to help along the business model of the news organizations themselves. Yeah, Josh's book is uh, An Advanced Man's Guide to White House Stagecraft, Campaign Spectacle and Political Suicide, published in 2016 by St. Martin's Press. Josh King, thank you so much for your time today. Keith, it was my pleasure.